0: of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca. Let me pray for us, then we're going to open God's word this morning. Uh, Let's bow our heads in prayer. Jesus, we come this morning uh, needing your grace, needing your mercy and needing to hear what perhaps is to many of us a very familiar story, needing to hear it afresh. And so would you come by your Holy Spirit and help us? Because we are needy, like a child in a manger, uh, we need your help. So would you come? Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Amen. Well, there is a popular saying that goes something like this. Maybe you've heard it. Familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt, that's right. And the idea here being that knowing someone or something for a long time will eventually, over time, lead you to losing respect for them or becoming annoyed with them, having contempt for them. And while I've certainly known that to be true in some instances, in some instances, I find that only occasionally does familiarity breed contempt. Much more frequently, I see the offspring of familiarity not being contempt, but boredom. Familiarity breeds boredom is a more frequently true saying. Familiarity breeds boredom. As human beings, we have this capacity to take the most wonderful truths, the most incredible people, and through constant exposure to these ideas or to these people, make them small, make them boring, ho-hum. Likewise, the Christmas story and its wonder can be lost in its familiarity. Familiarity breeds boredom. No doubt, whether you're a Christian or not, this month you've encountered countless images of wise men, uh, dozens of nativity scenes, both on front lawns or maybe in miniature over a fireplace. You perhaps have even placed a star atop your Christmas tree. The, the constant exposure to these symbols of the Christian story, the Christmas story, can begin to repeatedly whisper familiarity to us. Fill our hearts, not with wonder, not with awe, but with boredom. And with this in mind, I want us to walk through the Christmas story this morning one more time and invite us to see if this old familiar story breeds something else in us. So let's look at it. Luke 2, if you have your Bible, I want to read verses 1 to 3 again. And Marlow's already read them for us, but I'm going to do it again anyways. Bible's open, Luke 2, 1 to 3. Let me read these three verses for us. It says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. We'll stop there. If you come to the Bible expecting a series of disconnected, cryptic, spiritual platitudes, Luke 2 is surprising. Luke 2 is strange. It's surprising, of course, in its historical specificity. Right? Luke says, and we read, a decree went out from a real person in history, Caesar Augustus. This was the first registration of this guy named Corinius, who was governor of Syria. In short, Luke is making the case very early on here that this Christmas story actually happened. That it actually happened. This really happened when Augustus was Caesar, and you can go and see that in the historical archives. This really happened when Corinius was governor. This really happened in a region of the world that you can go and visit today. It really happened. Not once, not once do any of the gospel writers begin their gospels once upon a time. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Not the most flashy entrance, but but nonetheless an important one. Mark likewise begins his gospel locating Jesus in a place and a time. Even John... The most conceptual of all the Gospels begins in the beginning, and not just generally in the beginning, but in the beginning of this world, this planet, this age, in the beginning, John says. But but Luke is perhaps our strongest historian. After all, he begins this Gospel not with an appeal to our emotions, not by drawing us in with some sort of illustration. Luke begins his Gospel very boringly appealing to our minds. Luke says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. While the spiritual, the the metaphysical implications of Christmas are huge, are significant, Christmas can only be spiritually significant if it is first historically significant. If the wise men and the star and the baby in the manger actually happened. I I want you to know something this morning. And and I hope this will be a bit disarming to you if you come in with with your guard up. I am not here to give you advice this morning. I am not here to give you advice this morning. I am here to tell you what happened in history. And the difference is important. But Pastor Tim Keller, he tells us the difference when he writes this. Advice is counsel about what you must do. You must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize that something that has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says... It is all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. Christmas is a story about what God has done, how God has acted in a particular time, at a particular place, in a particular person. As such, Christmas is not something we can ignore because it comes to us not as a spiritual principle, not as an allegory, not as a moralistic fairy tale, but comes to us, Christmas does, as a historical event that each one of us must reckon with, must deal with. And if that's the case, if that is true, wouldn't it make most sense for us to listen to those cl- closest to the Christmas story? And so Luke continues. Listen now to how Luke would have us understand. What happened at that first Christmas? Mary and Joseph, they make the trek to Bethlehem. You can picture a couple of cute kids in bathrobes in a play. They're going to Bethlehem. Here's what happens. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. For many of us, the text that I just read is so familiar to you that it's become boring. But if we just stop for a moment, and this is the moment, if we stop for a moment and consider what Luke is saying, what Luke records, it's actually quite staggering, quite amazing. Amazing. After locating Jesus' birth in history, Luke now takes us into the identity of this historical person, who Jesus is. And in these six verses, we see Jesus both in his lowly humility and in his lofty heights. Consider first the lowly humility of Jesus. Luke records, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There is no room for Jesus, literally. Jesus is born and he's placed in a manger usually full of animal spittle and food. Right? You can think about this if you're a new parent. You know how cautious you are at the beginning, making sure everything's clean. And wipe down and sanitize. And there's Jesus in a manger. What's more, the birth announcement for Jesus is not amongst high society. It's not amongst the upper class or the wealthy or the rich. His announcement isn't like this monogrammed piece of beautiful paper that gets delivered to people in big houses. No. What does Luke record? This announcement comes to shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. These are men not of power and influence, but working class, blue collar, sometimes ostracized. The the, the lowly humility of Jesus becomes even more apparent when we consider the lofty heights ascribed to this baby in the manger by the angels. Appearing in terrifying, illuminating glory The angels peel back the veil on just who this child truly is. And they say to the shepherds, He says to the shepherds, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Who is Christ the Lord. The one in the manger, crying, pooping, eating, smiling, is the one anointed by God. In fact, God himself sent to save us. This tension of lowly humility and lofty grandeur doesn't just appear for the first time here in Luke's gospel. It is all over the Bible. In fact, it is all over the Isaiah text we heard right this morning. The Isaiah reading we heard earlier contains this same tension of high and low. There, in this text, Isaiah begins with the image of a formidable enemy, a formidable foe. He says in verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Darkness here is the language of oppression. It's the language of, of comprehensive domination. Not just political oppression, but spiritual. Not just social unrest, but spiritual unrest. A condition not unique to Israel, a condition impacting us all. It's a condition we see playing out today, isn't it? In the wars and the conflicts of our time. In the injustices and oppression in our city. In the harsh words and despair in our home. In the evil, selfish, and confused desires of our hearts. But 400 years before Jesus' birth... God said that into this deep darkness, he would send a blinding light, even a great warrior, to liberate his people. This is high and lofty cosmic stuff. And who does God send? Verse 6 of Isaiah 9 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Why does God send his transcendent, lofty son to lowly humility? To strips of cloth? Frail humanity contained in a manger? The answer, friends, is to save us. To rescue us. The humility of the Christmas story reminds us of the humility that Jesus will demonstrate later in life when the wooden manger will be replaced by a wooden cross. When the swaddling cloth will be replaced with a linen burial shroud. Later, however, the angel will not announce his birth. There, the angels from an empty tomb will announce his resurrection. Again, I'm not here to give you advice. I'm just here to tell you what happened. C.S. Lewis invites us to think of the whole of Jesus' earthly ministry. From birth to resurrection, like one may think of a diver. First reducing himself to nakedness. Then glancing in midair. Then gone with a splash. Vanished rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. The good news of great joy, the angels proclaimed that night, is that the precious thing which Christ descended to recover, to pull from the death-like region of ooze and slime and decay, is you and me. It's his church. That God in Jesus has come low that we may be brought to life. If this is true, if this is true, how could... How could familiarity with this story, with this story, breed boredom in us? It's been my experience that constant exposure to something or someone leads me to take that thing, that person, for granted. Perhaps you know the experience. Familiarity and repetition gives us the illusion of mastery. Mastery. In other words, familiarity feeds our pride. Our pride. Pride is, if you want to understand and embrace the Christmas story, the biggest obstacle. The biggest obstacle to the Christmas story is my pride and your pride. The nature of the arrival of Jesus does not appeal to our ego. Consider for a moment the implications of all that I've said so far. Ready? At his birth and in his life, Jesus identifies not with the strong and the powerful, but with the poor, the weak, and the oppressed. To to cling to Jesus, the crucified Savior, as your Savior is to say something about yourself, who you are. What's more, in coming as a Savior... Jesus pronounces as futile, as worthless, our abilities to save ourselves by being good enough, enlightened enough, progressive enough, to cling to Jesus is to cling to Jesus alone as your Savior. The Christmas story then to proud people like us is terribly offensive, wildly offensive. And as long as it remains offensive, it cannot be received. And yet for all the ways this story offends us and offends our pride, there is another way to respond to the Christmas story. With honesty and humility. I want to invite you this morning to honestly consider how being your own personal Savior has worked out for you. The anxiety of wondering if you've done enough. The the endless searching for new insights and wisdom to make you feel like you're a worthy savior to uphold. The secret hope, perhaps you can relate to this, the secret hope that you'd be diagnosed with something that would justify your mediocrity, your inability. In that tender moment of personal honesty, let me invite you to a posture of humility. Like the way a baby needs their mother, like the way a, room, a roomless person needs a roof, like the way shepherds need angels, like the way sinners need a savior. When we come to the Christmas story humbly, not proudly, the scales of boredom begin to fall from our eyes. Familiarity then breeds wonder. Familiarity then breeds thanksgiving. Familiarity then breeds praise and worship and glory and honor. We then join the angel and the vast heavenly army, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let us stand together. And as we stand and respond, let me pray. Father, I pray that this Christmas, the story of your son's arrival would breed in us not boredom, not contempt, but wonder and awe. Lord, that you would work in our hearts, creating in us a humble posture that we might receive all that the incarnation, all that the coming of your Son says about us and who you are, Lord. Lord, I pray for the one here who does not know you and I ask that they would come to know you, that today they would reckon with this news that you have come, that you have lived, that you have died and you have risen from the grave that all who trust in you might have life and life to the full. We thank you, Jesus, for this good news this Christmas Eve. Would we celebrate it not just today, but every day of the year? In Jesus' name, amen.